We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Plugge with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. I am Megan Weiskup with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. We've got three hosts on today joining us. So I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism. We also have Julia Plugge with Nebraska Game and Parks. Hello. And we're also joined by Rachel Alice today of the Iowa DNR. Hello, everyone. As always, we're excited to have you for another awesome segment and introduce you to yet another knowledgeable guest. So this week, we've had some pretty intense storms roll through the Midwest. Um, I know there are some areas northwest of where I live in Pretty Prairie that were reporting like 80 plus mile per hour wind gusts on Sunday night. So like that's one of those nights where you lay in bed and you fall asleep, like dreading what's to come. And then you wake up in the morning and peek out of the blinds to see how much of the siding has like peeled off your house or how much roof you have intact. <laughs> so um, we were really lucky. We didn't see a ton of damage, um, but I know there are some areas a little bit north of us that did see a bit. So the power of that storm really got us thinking, what do animals do during storms? Where do they go? How do they stay safe? How is it that I've never had a soggy raccoon show up on my porch, like begging to come inside? And yet I have to crawl through the mud under the deck and drag my soaking wet PO'd cat back inside anytime some weather pops up unexpectedly. <laughs> Well, to shed some light on that and a lot more, we have Deidre Kramer joining us today. Good morning, Deidre. We're so happy to have you with us today. So Tana's told us that you're the director of the Pratt Education Center and Museum. So for those of us that don't live in Kansas, can you give us a little bit more about the Education Center and the museum? Like what kind of programs do you do? Just anything you'd like to tell us about your... Uh, employment? Yeah, so the Pratt Education Center, the building was established in 1913 and was actually a research center for the KU, Kansas State University. I guess we're not all in Kansas. I should specify what KU means. <laughs> so it has a pretty rich history and it was one of the first um, hatcheries in the state. And we were actually one of the biggest hatcheries in the state of Kansas. So, you know, there's a, a big history of the Pratt Hatchery. I believe it was in like the 50s or 60s. They uh, kind of transitioned the building into more of a, a museum, of a wildlife museum. From there, it kind of grew and developed. And we have 12 aquariums in the building that were actually used um, still the same same cement and everything that were used in, you know, the early 1900s for that research. They weren't very fancy. And so what we've done is we've actually, we're just finishing up a renovation project that has taken a lot of collaboration and several years to complete. And we've completely retrofitted those aquariums to represent different um, aquatic habitats uh, throughout the state ranging from, you know, the southeast corner all the way up to the northwest corner of the state. So uh, we're still working on getting fish species for that, for our tanks and stuff, and like getting 
um, everything set up, but we're really excited about that. And, you know, that's one of the big projects that we've been working on. So, so that's so cool. Um, <laughs> and we always like to have our guests kind of give a little bit of background as to their story. We kind of get a glimpse into a little bit, but we'd love to hear a little bit more about where you're from hobbies and, and maybe the path you took to get into your current role. Yeah, of course. So, I grew up in Northwest Kansas in Norton County. Um, so it's pretty much right next to Nebraska. We had a farm and everything. So I grew up, you know, rough and tumble outside looking for everything. I would just spend hours looking at plants and all the insects that would, you know, crawl on the plants. I never knew, you know, what I was looking at, but I was super interested in it. Yeah, it was uh, that kind of got me started on my path in biology. And in high school, you know, really small school. So we didn't, they didn't offer a lot of biology courses. It was just kind of a basic biology and then human anatomy. So I actually did independent studies. I really thought that I wanted to be, you know, working in Colorado and the forests and things like that, uh, just because it was kind of novel to me. That ended up not working out. And I I went to Fort Hayes State University um, after graduating uh, high school. And I started focusing on botany and I focused on plant anatomy, plant physiology, and that stuff was very interesting to me. But I also had a very cool and interesting conservation professor. And that got me thinking more of how do animals and plants uh, interact? How do we as humans impact our environment? All of those questions. And so my master's thesis. I actually studied the uh, spatial ecology, population demographics of ornate box turtles, Quivira National Wildlife Refuge. So I kind of have, a, I don't know, kind of all over, really. I just enjoy it all. <laughs> so yeah, I guess that's kind of my story. Well, Deidre, we're so happy to have you join us. And I just, I have to give you a little plug here because you are, um, you know, we try to feature women that are highly intelligent powerhouses in the field. And you definitely fit that bill. You made some incredible improvements to that museum, both the structure of the building itself and this programs and the health and happiness of its inhabitants. Like I have never seen sunfish kept in a fish tank looking so healthy as the ones that you keep. So you're incredible and you know so much. And I think I speak for everybody that we definitely would be interested in having you back on sometime to talk about box turtles, because that would be so cool. I would love that. (laughs) Definitely. And I'm thinking a field trip is in order to, oh, like we have got to go visit your facility. It sounds amazing from what you've explained and and Tana's explaining. We're putting that on the calendar here in the future. Well, thank you. (laughs) So let's get into the meat of the conversation. And it sounds like you definitely are the one to, to take us there in that discussion. You know, as as Tana mentioned in the beginning, we are in storm season. You know, Iowa, Kansas, and Nebraska. It's it is what it is. And you know, Deidre, you said you lived just a little bit south of Nebraska. And from my understanding and experience from living in Nebraska my entire life, you are in the heart of tornado alley. And so you have experienced and seen firsthand what humans or what animals how they react you know we know that the animal kingdom is incredibly diverse and that they act differently when they're dealing with threats 
versus if it is predation or habitat loss or changing weather conditions. You know, as an example, um, even, you know, Tana had mentioned her cat hiding under the porch. My uh, dog, and I've had two border collies like this now that it could be a clear blue sky, perfectly a view, but they are under your feet. They are even to be hiding under tractors that are driving. And we have learned through experience that they feel that pressure of a storm coming. Mm-hmm. And animals, they have this, and I'm excited to learn more. And so this, she always knew the dogs to go hide because there's storms coming. They sense that. Um, humans even, I think some of us get headaches or knee aches. We know when storms are coming. And it's just an amazing thing that animals do. Which animals are m- most likely to take cover, you know, during, during a storm, which are unbothered, like that doesn't bother them at all? You know, do they get excited by the moisture or the electricity in the air? Let's get, let's get into this storm season conversation. Yeah. So I would say that like all uh, terrestrial animals really seek shelter. We don't want to stand out in the middle of a thunderstorm. And I would say most of those animals don't either. Where they seek shelter differs by species and even just by the group, by animal group. Your large ungulates, so your, you know, pronghorn, your bison, deer, they will Sometimes if it's available, you know, they seek shelter under trees and and dense forested areas. If it's not available, they're just kind of out in the elements. And so they just have a behavioral um, adaptation, if you will, that they will turn their face away from the direction of the storm. And that kind of protects, you know, they can heal if, you know, hail hits them on the back or in their rump, if you will. But, you know, they have to protect their brain and their, their face. So, Uh, That's just kind of what they do. As far as animals that aren't affected, to an extent, all animals are affected by storms. Maybe the least affected would be your aquatic species like fish, um, unless you, oh, I'm trying to think how to say this, unless there's a flooding event, you know, and then those fish are going to have a larger habitat. They might, you know, get stuck in a, a pool that they can't get out of once it dries up. So, you know, that I think every species is affected. You obviously have your kind of water-loving animals like amphibians and worms and stuff. And I don't know if they necessarily get excited by a storm, but it definitely brings them out and going on <laughs> kind of activities. So perfect time to uh, get worms for fishing is right after a rain, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. And there's, there's some really interesting... Um, hypotheses about that. So it used to be uh, believed that the earthworms would emerge because they were uh, going to drown. But actually, scientists are thinking now that it's for migratory purposes. They can't migrate large distances due to, you know, their skin drying out, they need to have moist skin to breathe. And so the you know, during a drought, they, they obviously can't move very far. So that's kind of a hypothesis that's out there. Another one uh, that I was just reading about is they think that the raindrops cause like a vibration on the ground. And it's very similar to the vibrations that like a mole will make digging underground and, and the worms will go upward to avoid the mole and their predators. And so maybe they're, you know, 
tricked into thinking that a predator's coming and they move up to the, the surface. That, that's, that is cool. I mean, I'm, I'm that one that always thinks that, oh, they're going to drown, they're coming up. But to comments that you had said now, I certainly can see that as a factor. I mean, some scientific studies there. And I kind of had a chuckle to myself when you're talking about animals, um, you know, like deer staring into the storm. Like we don't like our faces pelleted. So we turn away and living on a farm. I've, I've witnessed this during storms often with cows that they literally will have their back I mean, all of them, all 60 of them will be facing away from the storm of the wind is coming at them. And it's funny because I'll see all of a sudden, like within a minute, they all rotate 90 degrees. And it is, and then you notice that the wind had completely done this shift. And mm-hmm. so it, it's just amazing how intelligent, you know, the animals are and to pr- be able to protect themselves. And I certainly see like, you know, those larger animals or any animal doing doing the same and and i could see where you know antelope we, we talk about habitat protection that antelope have their habitat that there isn't a lot of protection to be able to hide under trees so yeah there's you know the prairie is wide open and so they really have to be creative in their solutions to you know being out in the elements for sure um, and that could be as simple as finding being on the leeward side of a, of a hill or something. And that's just a little added protection. And it's you can learn a lot from watching animals and their behavior. All right, DJ, I have a quick follow up for those of us that don't have an animal ecology background. What is a terrestrial animal? Oh, yeah, of course. So uh, terrestrial just means that they live on on land. So Deidre, I'm really curious, you know, we've talked about um, these ungulates or these animals that are like antelope and bison, you said that live out on these open prairies. I can't imagine being stuck out there during a storm. That seems terrifying. But what about animals that live in dens? Like how do they keep their dens from filling up with water? Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, question. A lot of den dwelling animals, they will dig down in the ground, obviously. And then what they do is they kind of make these little pockets in their den. So they dig in an upward, kind of at a diagonal curve away from the main entrance or main channel of their den. And that's where they can go find um, a refuge from a flooding event that's going in you know, flooding their house, essentially. They can also use those as their nesting sites. And so they'll raise their young in those little side pockets. And then that way, if there is a flooding event, while their young are too, you know, still very vulnerable, then their young can be protected as well. Fascinating. Okay. For our feathered friends, our avian friends, what impacts of rain, high level waters or hail have on like the nests or the young? Yeah, so I would say high winds and hail are definitely detrimental to our bird. The species that live in uh, their little burrows, like uh, chickadees, bluebirds, or, you know, owls, they're less affected by hail or high winds, but your songbird species that perch on branches, obviously their nests uh, are very vulnerable and, you know, nests can fall out, uh, hatchlings can fall out of the uh, nest. And so even hail can, can kill birds um, if it's, you know, bigger than, well, even a pea-sized hail would probably be 
pretty pretty detrimental to a small bird species. And then nesting populations as well, right? Because in uh, this area of Kansas, we had some pretty major flood events in 2018. And I've heard theorized, obviously I'm not a biologist, but I've heard theorized that those high waters might have flooded out some pheasant nests or maybe turkey nests as well. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So a lot of ground nesting birds would be affected that way. Your meadowlark species, um, big thistles, all of those species are ground nesting birds in our prairies. And so flash flood events can definitely impact that, their their populations for sure. Deidre, if any of our listeners were to find a baby bird or maybe even like a baby squirrel that was blown out of a nest during a storm, what should we do? Yeah, so there's this uh, myth that birds will abandon their young if you touch them. That's not true. I I would say the majority of birds, I don't know if any birds are affected that way or react that way, but from my knowledge, most species don't. And so if you can find the nest, it's really just take a glove, like a leather glove or something, gently move the bird onto your hand. And if you can reach the nest, just simply put the the bird back in. You can also, if you really think that the individual is injured, um, you can find local rehab, uh, wildlife rehabilitation centers that are willing to take animals in usually. As a state agency, we don't really do rehabilitation. We're more worried about populations and not individuals. And so, you know, definitely contact your local rehabilitation centers, if that's something you think needs to happen. What about the more delicate uh, species, you know, like our moths and and butterflies, you know, how do they keep those wings dry or, you know, even stay out of the wind? Because I mean, some of that wind, us humans have a hard time staying up. I can't even imagine to be a little itty bitty insect and have to power through that and and protect yourself. Yeah. So they, Um, especially like moths and butterflies, they will simply just find shelter under leaves on, again, like the leeward side of a tree or something or a plant. I know I noticed a lot when I was younger, we would always have moths like cling to the window uh, screens on our front porch and stuff. And so just like any kind of shelter away from that rain is really what they're going to be looking for. And interestingly enough, a lot of uh, bees will have, we have a lot of ground nesting bees in the United States and they will make their, their nests or their, their little burrows waterproof. Um, And so they do that by collecting oils and waxes from different flowers. And then they will sit there and line their little burrow uh, with the, these hydrophobic or, you know, water fearing, if you will, materials. And that's how they make their, their little homes waterproof. Super interesting. I just learned that the other day. That's fascinating. I have a background in fisheries biology from K-State. And so, you know, I'm thinking about how much, how crucial that water level is, especially to fish species. Um, And in some events, fish will, they're dependent on some flow in the water. Sometimes fish have their eggs that float through the water column or that increased flow in the spring allows them to migrate towards spawning grounds, things like that as well. So, you know, obviously water can also flood vegetation in the spring and that's crucial for those spawning events as well and provide some good nursery ground and potentially some good forage as well. Well, maybe this is a dumb question, but what happens if lightning strikes the water? 
uh, a lot of things will die. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So there can be big kills if that happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just reading um, a little bit about an event in Kansas city and I forget what year this happened in, but it was a kind of like a microburst, and there were just like five inch hail. Um, and it was just, it killed a ton of like waterfowl, a bunch of geese. And then also a lot of fish died and they were kind of stumped as like, how, why did these fish die in this microburst? But they think that the temperature dropped so rapidly that the fish, you know, kind of went into shock and died that way. So yeah, there's definitely some negative impacts to your aquatic species. And we know that water is highly conductive of electricity. Yeah, if, if lightning strikes near water, on water, it's very likely that that electric current is going to be carried throughout your water body. Well, you mentioned too that sometimes that water creates little ponds or pockets and sometimes fish can get trapped there. But mm-hmm. a lot of like our amphibians depend on those small little pools, right? To have like a rearing site and a nursery area for their young. Yes. Yeah, those are very important. And you'll always notice right after a heavy rain that your frogs and your toad species really start vocalizing. And that's the cue that, Hey, we have a nice mating pond here. How about all you females come over and we'll, we'll get together. Can um, also going back to the vegetation along like say a lake uh, right along the edge. And if the water uh, volume increases, then that also provides a better place for your frogs and toads to lay their eggs. And, you know, like you said, that'll attract the fish there because fish love to eat those eggs. So yeah, there are definitely benefits to high water events and there's also negatives. Speaking of the negatives, and that's what I wanted to ask a question there, or even just maybe just make a statement that, you know, we Nebraska and I think Kansas and Iowa had the same massive flooding uh, 2019. And yes, in 2019, where, you know, those, those flooding pockets can make a positive habitat for our amphibians or certain spe- other species. But on the other hand, you know, some of our amazing lakes that our biologists have put lots of hours into successfully developing this habitat can ultimately be destroyed by a invasive species that has been been drugged in by those storms in a matter of seconds literally Mm -hmm. and so to this day you know our, our biologists two years almost three years later are now working to re uh, to fix those habitats and because of again mother nature's way of adding a little spice to to the world <laughs> yeah well on the flip side too like julia and rachel i don't know if you guys have noticed in your states but in kansas we've had one of the best crappie spawns or i guess the past couple of years we've had really good crappie spawns because that vegetation was flooded there was an increased forage and then it was just a really productive spawning season so our anglers have really benefited from that in our fisheries as well. So that's been kind of a cool positive. Yeah, it's always important to remember not everything is negative. You know, we might not like our houses flooding, but some other animals really benefit from that. All right. So my next question probably won't get summed up in a very quick statement. 
it could probably be its own episode. As we're talking about some of these major events like flooding or, or big tornado hurricanes, those types of things, how's climate change affecting our weather patterns and wildlife populations? Climate change is a big one. So we're having more sporadic storms and then we're also increasing, you know, climate change is also increasing the severity of those storms. So we're having higher flood events, so more rain in a less amount of time, which will create those flash floods. Um, I know when I first moved down to Pratt to begin my job, we had a pretty big rain and kind of a flood event, and we actually had a lot of wildlife going into residential areas because there was nowhere else for them to go. And, you know, that goes on to us fragmenting their habitat, removing habitat. And so it were climate change and human involvement involvement is really, you know, making it difficult for these species to acclimate to these changes. You also have to think about, you know, last year we had this lovely spring and then within a day it was, it was gone. It was done. It was hundred degrees like that day. And, you know, just watching my yard and my plants, it, they went from big and lively and, and beautiful to just shriveled and like, you know, the SpongeBob me uh, episode where he's like, water, that's what they were doing. Um, <laughs> you know, so it really impact our plant and habitat community or, you know, populations and our wildlife depend on that. And so if they don't have the habitat, then they can't survive. Our winters, we're not getting as much snow, you know, and so that means less moisture available in the springtime after everything melts. And I can say from personal experience with my ornate box turtle study that we had a very dry spring and all my, but it was very warm, but the spring storms hadn't shown up yet. And so all, almost all my box turtles were out and active that I was tracking. And I had a huge die off in the turtles I was studying because they can't migrate. They don't migrate. There was no water. There was no insects available. And so those, those hotter winters and springs are definitely going to have an impact um, because there's, there's no water resource available. Yeah. It's so hard to sum that up in one conversation, but like we've made some huge changes to the environment as well that have Mm -hmm. made us more vulnerable to these big flooding events. Like for example, some of the land that we've developed maybe for agricultural or even just like backyards and things, um, we're removing these native prairie grasses that have these long, deep, tremendous root systems Uh, To our listeners, if you've never Googled like length comparisons between like a stalk of corn, for example, and native prairie grasses to see how deep those roots go, it's truly mind boggling. But that, you know, that helps with two things when you have those long root systems, they might be able to soak up some of that water, but also it helps with erosion too. So we're not washing away those lands and basically just creating a slick for water to continue traveling. But in addition to that, we're obviously paving roads, parking lots, all these areas that unless they're engineered specifically to absorb water, which some of the newer designs are, you know, that water is just running right off of them. So, and we've obviously changed drainage patterns as well, um, trying to move water away from residential areas and cities, sending it back out toward rivers and things like that. Like we've really had a huge impact and then also developing housing communities or um, agricultural field all the way up to the end 
of like a river or something right up to the buffer. More and more, you know, there's programs in place to encourage farmers to leave those riparian buffers or land developers in any way to leave those riparian buffers that help with erosion and help control some of that flooding. Deidre, am I just spewing wild facts or am I on the right track here? No, you are perfectly like you are on the right track. I was going to mention floodplains is basic. That's what you're talking about. And keeping those riparian or, you know, land dwelling vegetation along the sides of our rivers and allowing the river to go up into its floodplain naturally definitely helps with water retention. And it helps with the, you know, that impact, like you said, of, of erosion and possibly even destroying crops, et cetera. Right. Well, and so many of our rivers too, are these sand bottom rivers that are historically pretty sinuous. Like they're pretty windy and they kind of change their pattern based on water flows and they almost migrate in a sense. And so a lot of what we've done is because we want to use that land for housing or for agriculture or whatever, we have straightened out these rivers and we've put in like concrete barriers or stuff so that river can't naturally wind and change shape and adapt to some of those changes and flows. So it, it really is kind of fascinating. I would say if you really want to look into a study about channelized, uh, channelized river, um, you need to look at Florida because they channelize the rivers down there and they have spent thousands, probably millions of dollars um, allowing that to go back to that natural sinuosity and stuff. So I would definitely encourage people to check that study out. That could be a whole nother podcast on its own too. So <laughs> we can all put our toes into the Missouri river. And so um, we're talking from the experience right there again, 2019 and that the Missouri river. And like you said, I think we could, we could spend a lot of time on this and from agriculture being affected by that or affecting it as, as well as house development as well. Mm -hmm. You know, let's, let's put a house next to a river. Well, we know what rivers can, can do. So certainly we definitely could go on and on about this again, add her to the conversation for a future podcast. Yeah. Deidre, you're going to have a long list of topics. We need you to come back and cover. <laughs> Totally fine with that. Um, I like sharing, you know, what I've learned. So, and I'm constantly trying to learn. All right. To get us back on track, I guess I'll ask my factor fiction of the day. Can animals sense a change in the weather before we do? We kind of alluded to some things we've noticed, but is there any true truth to that? Definitely. I would say fact on that one. So what happens during a, a thunderstorm development is you have a cold front or a cold mass of air moving up against a hot mass of air. And what will happen is the cold air is more dense than the hot air. So it will kind of push itself underneath the hot air, which then rises up into the atmosphere. And that little you know, transition, that changes the atmospheric pressure and so animals can sense that happening quite a bit earlier than we can. You know, we can see the storm front, we can see or feel, you know, the cold wind picking up, that kind of thing. But animals definitely sense it before, before we do. And so they'll start seeking cover. Funny story is we have a bird feeder outside of our building and I was just kind of doing my thing inside and all of a sudden all the birds were just gone. And they, I mean, they flock to that bird feeder. As soon as I put it out in the mornings, they just fly into it. And I kid you not, like 20 minutes later, huge wind 
huge storm. It was, you know, there's a, a physical example of, I had no idea. It was kind of cloudy, but you know, looked like a normal day to me. Birds just left and, and found shelter. That's so fascinating. And do we have any idea, this might be getting too far in the weeds, DJ, I apologize. I'm guilty of that, but do we have any idea what that change in, so like they can sense the change in pressure, but what does that actually feel like to an animal? Is it like pressure in their brain of like, they get a headache kind of like some humans do. Is it more of a tactile, like something they feel on their skin? Do we have any idea? You know, I'm sure some scientists out there are looking into that. I honestly, I personally haven't read any studies other than, you know, you can, I guess people always say the turtle crosses the road before a storm and I would say that's pretty accurate. You know, I haven't actually done any, any research into that. It's about the season to start uh, telling people to break for turtles, isn't it, Deidre? Yes. I always make it a point to get on my social media and remind people to watch out for your turtles and your snakes and to gently move them across the road in the way, in the direction that they're going. Well, I wouldn't say I've almost wrecked my vehicle trying to dodge a turtle, but um, I've definitely done some swerving, some hard swerving and braking. <laughs> I've also, I'm one of those people that I break for butterflies and I was on the interstate going like 80 and I scared my boyfriend to death because I just did this huge gasp and like kind of tapped on the brakes. I didn't swerve or anything, but there was just this monarch butterfly, like waving, like riding the waves of the air currents. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you have to make it to the other side, little guy. Deidre, I respect your dedication, but I am not getting in a car with you anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, just not during the migration of the monarch season. <laughs> right? Yeah, I... I think I gave my boyfriend a minor heart attack that day. I've even had a boss sitting in the passenger side and I braked for a swallowtail and I hit it. Unfortunately, I wasn't quick enough, but he just like got water. He's drinking out of his water bottle and he got it all over himself. And he's like, was it worth it? And I'm like, well, I mean, it would have been worth it if I, you know, actually missed the butterfly. Well, I'm glad we got to make that plug. Like do, do break for animal species. It's that season where animals might be, uh, might be migrating or moving a little bit extra, whether they're looking for a mate or nesting ground or who knows what else, but, uh, do, do be safe out there folks exercise good caution. Yeah. I don't follow my example. Um, you know, do break for, for animals, but I probably take it to another level of extreme. So definitely be safe. Lightning is definitely a risk for wildlife. You know, where the, where are they supposed to go? They, we've all been told from kids, or at least I was that don't hide under a tree if you're caught in the middle of a storm because lightning strikes the highest point. And where, where do wildlife go? You know, our perching, our perching birds, our songbirds, they hide in, you know, spruce trees or, you know, conifers, things like that, that have more cover. Well, if lightning strikes that tree, those, those birds are going to die from that. So um, there's even been documents of, or documented cases of like mountain goats hiding under a tree. And the biologists found just like six or seven goats just evenly spaced around this tree that had been struck by lightning. Um, so even if you're a ground dwelling animal and you're under the tree, that could get you. Kind of on that same tangent of uh, of 
strange but true. So we've heard the, the saying, it's raining cats and dogs. We've all seen, well, hopefully have seen the movie Twister. Um, and if you haven't, get on Netflix or Hulu or wherever you get your movies and, and watch it because it's a great one. And it was partially filmed in Iowa. A little plug there. But can animals actually get sucked up into storms and air quote rain down? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's, you know, documented cases way back in the, you know, 13th century of this happening. And we have a little better idea. Um, you know, I think back then they kind of thought it was a sign from God. Um, now we know how it actually happens a little better. So with these major storms, you have kind of these winds whirling around each other, and that can create kind of like a mini tornado or a mini vortex. And if that happens to be like over a water body, um, or even on land, it could happen there too, but it will actually suck up like small, small amphibians, like frogs and, and toads and things like that. Or even if it's a strong enough vortex, it'll even pick up fish. And so, you know, once that, that vortex kind of moves back into the terrestrial landscape or your land, uh, you're on land, those, uh, animals are pretty heavy. And so it'll, it'll basically drop the heaviest thing first. And so that's why, you know, if there's, if it sucked up a bunch of fish and frogs, for example, the fish will drop in one place. And then as the winds are calming down some more, the frogs might be deposited somewhere else. And so that's where we get that saying from. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. And, and there's a lot of articles out there on it. That's fascinating. Uh, we had, a, we actually had green, green sunfish show up in the middle of a crop field and there's this own little pond. And then they ended up, you know, having such a great source of food and, and whatnot that we had tons of sunfish just in the middle of this field. And so I'm guessing they were, because the river is probably 400, 500 yards away. So I'm guessing they got sucked up and put back down. It's, just, it's fascinating. That's so cool. Science. Yeah. Tell right. Me. Joy of science and understanding. It's great. We're totally nerding out on science today, aren't we? This is like, this is a great conversation. And that's what this podcast is for is Tana, Rachel, and I are learning from our expert guest today. And then we're using this information to share with you, our listeners. And we want to, you know, you, the listeners, what can they do, you know, to help? Or is there anything that we can can do to help with wildlife during or after a severe weather. You know, like we say, sometimes leave the young alone or perhaps maybe help them. Where a few minutes ago we were talking about scooping up a baby bird uh, gently and, and putting it back. Or are there incidents where, you know, it's it's a natural thing. It's it's their habitat. It's it's a natural way of life. It's the circle of life. Or do we leave them alone? Or give our listeners some tips of what we can do once the storm settles to, or even if we know the storm is coming, what can we do to protect the wildlife? You know, I would say it depends on the situation. If it's just a normal thunderstorm or, you know, snowstorm, the animals know what to do. They have evolved, that species has evolved to live in the plains and to, you know, put up with these extreme thunderstorms and rain events. So I guess going back to that, I would say mostly leave the animals alone. Um, we've had a lot of cases where 
people pick up a fawn thinking that it's lost and the mother's not coming back. Well, they essentially just, you know, killed the fawn because the mother won't take it back. Or, you know, they made a lot of work for a rehabilitator. I would just say research uh, the animal species that are around you. I'm definitely one of those that encourages people to leave it alone or, you know, like I said earlier, just gently pick up the bird and put it back in the nest if needed. You know, the extreme freeze that Texas had, um, you know, they had a lot of sea turtle rehabilitators going out and volunteers going sure. out and picking up the sea turtles that were basically stunned by this cold weather because that's very, you know, not normal for, for down there. It's very atypical event. And so that kind of situation, definitely, I would, you know, encourage people to go out and care for those wild animals that are being affected by, you know, extreme climate change events, and extreme weather events. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, we've been speaking a lot about spring storms. But I think even as we get closer to the winter season, we can rehash this conversation what happens during a blizzard or those massive cold snaps like we experienced this last winter and uh, killing vegetation that feeds then wildlife so yeah amazing information yeah Deidre I really like the way that you phrase that too you know if if you are interested in going out and helping wildlife one of the best ways to do that is to link up with a volunteer organization or some other group, a lot of times those are led by experts like Deidre, who are going to know how to handle those situations and can help instruct you a little better. You know, obviously, if it's something minor that you think you can handle, like Deidre said, of maybe gently putting a bird back in a nest, that's one thing. You know, it's great to consult experts like Julia, I think, mentioned, or Rachel, maybe. There are a lot of times where maybe nature just needs to take its course. And so if you're in a situation with an expert or with a volunteer organization, they'll be able to make that call. And so, uh, so you don't have to, and maybe you can sleep a little better at night knowing that you definitely did the right thing. Yes, definitely. That's, that's a very good way to phrase that. So Deidre, before we wrap up today, is there anything else you want to share with our She Goes Outdoors listeners, either about animal behavior during storms or anything else you want to chat about? You know, I just really want to encourage everyone to get outside. Um, we have fewer and fewer natural areas and their involvement and being interested in those areas uh, really helps. Sometimes you have to buy a permit to go out wildlife areas, and that helps with the conservation of it. Ask questions. Always ask questions. Uh, that's the beauty of science. We're always questioning things and learning from those uh, experiences and questions. So, you know, I, I had a lovely time talking with you all about this, and I'm, I'm sure we could all go another hour discussing biology, but that's kind of my final plug is just get outside, get your kids outside, start them early on, you know, enjoying nature. Amazing. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, um, I, I mean, I definitely learned a lot today or my favorite thing that we talked about other than it raining animals, because that's so fascinating how that can happen. The point you mentioned about dens and how animals construct their dens to have these little pockets of like sanctuary space where they can safely raise their young in a flood event. That is just so, so fascinating. You can learn a lot like engineering from what wild animals do. And if I was a burrowing animal as a human, I wouldn't even think to do that. But they have this amazing instinct to prepare for those events. It's, it's quite fascinating. Well, Deidre, uh, I think Julie and I would both agree that we would love to have you back on sometime, Rachel, as well, I'm sure. 
Um, so we will definitely follow up and thank you again. Yeah, thank you. It was, I had a great time. Great. Well, and to our listeners, you know, don't forget to contact us or follow up with us, connect with us on Facebook at She Goes Outdoors, and be sure to share us with your friends. Uh, you can also help us by liking and subscribing and rating our podcast to make sure that you get updates on future episodes, and then also tell us how we're doing. Uh, are there any topics that you want us to cover? Be sure to let us know. So keep sharing your awesome photos and videos with us. We love to see you guys out there. We have so much fun with that. And uh, as always, thanks for joining us and we'll see you outdoors. Outdoors.